This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at reactroundup.com slash kendoui. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I'm Corey House, and today on our panel, we have uh, Nader Dabit. Hello. And today for our guest, we have Samuel Mindenhall from Red Hat. Sam, you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. Yep, thanks for having me. So today, I understand our uh, topic is uh, best practices in React and Redux. And uh, Sam, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started? Yeah, sure. So I've been doing web development now for probably five years. You know, I started off probably basic, doing basic jQuery web development, maybe progressed to Backbone, did a lot in Knockout, which uh, is pretty old school at this point, um, and then progressed to uh, Angular. And then finally, I found React, which kind of blew my mind. And um, after kind of going the React route, I never really looked back at that point. So I've been doing React now for probably three years, not too long after um, it was released. I think I, I jumped on that bandwagon. I've been on that ever since, um, and it's been fantastic. Excellent. Sounds like we started about the same time. Natter, did you start at the beginning too? No, I was actually an Angular developer. The first time I touched React was actually with React Native because we were building um, out a prototype in Ionic, and we wanted to try React Native. So I actually had to learn React when I was learning React Native. So it was, wow, uh, it was in March, I think. 2015 or April 2015. It was like a week or two after they released React Native, actually. Okay, yeah, that's pretty rare for uh, somebody to start on the native side, but uh, yeah, that gives you a unique, unique perspective then. Yeah, totally. It was um, it was pretty interesting because I was learning not only um, working with a lot of the device APIs that were a little different than what I was used to in Cordova, but also kind of learning the React life cycles and just how React works in general. Right. Yep, I dealt with the same. So uh, let's see. So Sam, uh, you mentioned before we started the call that you um, are joining a new team at Microsoft. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about your role there? Yeah, uh, I'll tell you what I know. So I'm joining Monday, um, and it's in the commercial software engineering group. Um, and to my understanding now, it's, it's a bit of a tech evangelist. And uh, it's not consulting, but it, it's a lot of on-site work, essentially going on-site and unblocking uh, companies using Microsoft. Uh, unblocking them on complex problems, uh, finding the solution to those and then sharing those back out to the community. Um, and there's, I think, a lot of Azure um, involved in that and quite a bit of open source in terms of when open source can be used, use open source, right? And especially in, in terms of sharing back um, the, the knowledge gain and the solutions back to the community. Um, I think there's a very big emphasis on that. Um, so I'll know more once I'm in, so I'm not quite in, but that's my understanding now about what uh, the role is going to be involved with. So uh, kind of initially, I'll be doing a lot of React work on some internal tooling, um, which is w one reason I'm, I'm going to this position initially is to do a lot of React work um, to, to support uh, the internal processes there for the group. Okay. So you've been using React for a while. Can you talk a little bit about your uh, experience there and some things that you've learned along the way? Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, you know, when you learn anything new, I think there's always kind of that mysterious, uh, you know, uh, how deep does this rabbit hole go? And, you know, I, I think like with React, it's interesting. I feel like it's kind of shallow. You know, you still have that sense of, of, of it goes deep. 
Um, I think the learning curve is it's pretty shallow, which is fantastic. It's all just JavaScript. But you know, I think over over the years you get familiar with something and you learn a lot of the complexities about that something too. So you know, React like anything else. I mean, you know, like Angular has all of these little you know gotchas to it. I would say um, you know, there's all these little intricacies to it. Um, and React doesn't have nearly as many, but it still has them. I mean, there's still a lot of considerations, you know, with React, and especially once you get into scaling your application or large-scale application development, uh, especially with managing data and what the right way to do that is. Um, I'd say that's probably uh, one of the more difficult aspects of React, because React itself is, you know, it's very straightforward and simple um, in terms of, you know, you have a component which, you know, renders the DOM, and you render the DOM, and everything's handled internally within React. I mean, there's there's that aspect, but I mean, in general, the concept of React is very simple. Um, it's when you begin to build a bigger application, I would say that um, a lot of the uh, difficulties come in because it's such an open playing field versus other frameworks, which probably uh, more well-defined things. So, you know, a lot of around how do you how do you connect to your data? Um, how do you fetch your data? What are these side effects and consequences? Um, how do you handle those? Um, effectively and how do you scale? I mean, to me, it's a lot of it's about how do you scale uh, development and how do you scale, uh, well, on the team with people, right? Developing on it and how do you scale the actual app um, can be two of the, the more important things because, I mean, the nice thing about React is it basically gets out of the way so you can handle those things, right? Uh, you can ramp people up very easily. Um, and then that's about structuring your app properly so that it can properly scale um, as your code base grows and as your data grows and as your team grows. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious. Uh, you, so you've previously been working at Red Hat. Like, what kind of work were you doing there that influenced your, I guess, knowledge around React? Like, what kind of applications were you building, or were you doing stuff like internally yeah. there? Or were you kind of doing things on the side, or both? Um, a lot of everything. So um, I've done some, um, quite a few. Uh, they're called Access Labs. Um, most people not in the Red Hat ecosystem wouldn't know those, but. Um, they're kind of like break fix or proactive analysis uh, apps that are kind of self-contained, deployed uh, to the cloud, and that customers can use to help self-diagnose or self-solve. So um, those, you know, one of them, for example, was called um, Log Reaper, which was a client-side log analysis app um, using web workers and visualization. So you upload a log file from JBoss, for example, it parses it using web workers, sends it back, and then it uh, digests that with a library called, I think, was it C3? Um, I forget the library name, but it parsed it using MapReduce, all this sort of thing, and then it visualized it in the browser. Um, so you could kind of see your your errors over time, the top error counts, it did, you know, grouping and things like that. So that, that'd be one example of like an access lab stuff I've done. And there's been other things around there. Um, I've done a lot of internal tooling, probably the majority of, I've done some public facing. A lot of the apps I've done have been internal. So um, one of the major ones I worked on was, uh, uh, case management uh, within Red Hat. So, you know, Red Hat business model is uh, they sell support and support must service the cases for people opening uh, support tickets. So, um, I worked on a lot of the internal case management tools that uh, is in that entire ecosystem internally for uh, support to services, support contracts. Um, so, there's a public facing version of, of um, the case management, which is a much smaller piece. Like, our internal is a lot bigger than the external public facing one. So, um, you know, it includes not only the entire servicing of particular case, you know, making comments, doing all this, you know, looking at the count, all that sort of thing. Um, but it's also doing analysis and algorithms to, um, you know, assign cases to people and uh, all this sort of thing. It's a pretty big ecosystem internally within Red Hat. 
um, this whole support delivery ecosystem. Um, and then, so all that's done in React now. Um, it used to be Angular, and we did this big migration um, earlier, or mid last year, uh, to migrate to React because uh, it was an Angular 1.5. Um, so that let us get in the position that we're, you know, kind of future-proof, at least for some duration in the JavaScript world, right? So um, it, it was a very good rewrite and let us uh, really um, fix a lot of the issues that we had with Angular 1.5 and, and some things. Because it's easy to, with Angular, it's kind of easy to shoot yourself in the foot with Angular, I feel like, and go down, go down a path that it's not going to be very maintainable um, and going to be more like spaghetti code. So not that you can't, you can do that in, in React too. I mean, you can absolutely do that, but I, I find that the component model makes it much more logical um, that uh, you're kind of shielded against that to, to a good degree. So kind of related to that, can you share some common mistakes that you've seen people make in React? Yeah, you know, the one, like, there's a lot that I could say, like in terms of, you know, anonymous interfunctions and all that. And, you know, there, there's all these little things, sure, but like one of the reoccurring things that actually makes its way tangibly to production that I've seen uh, over a long period of time is um, not defensively programming um, and and trusting production data too much. And it's one of those innocuous things that, you know, you know, you reference two levels deep in an object and when you're connecting a component in Redux and you're like, okay, that should always work. I mean, I'm always going to have that object and I'm always going to have that uh, sub object and I'm always going to have that field. Like that is not true, right? And that's the one thing I've seen happen over and over and over is assuming data is going to be there, it's not going to be there called, you know, if you reference something two levels deep and it's not there, the object, maybe the network had an issue. Um, then you're going to get an undefined error translated to the user in some very ugly fashion. Um, and I've I just seen that happen so many times. And, you know, the more I, or the longer I've been in software engineering, the more defensively I've programmed and the less I've trusted the production data. Um, and I think that it's just, it's easy to, it's easy to trust the production data. I hit an endpoint, I'm supposed to get their response, right? But, you know, stuff happens in production, DNS issues, network issues, data corruption issues you know, a data center down issue. And that could even happen on a single API of 50 APIs you're connecting to that may have some unintended consequence. So I found that more defensively programming and always making sure that your application uh, it will properly handle when something is null. Like, I think that's key. And you, you have to go in with that mindset because if you don't, it's just, it's easy to um, just assume everything's always going to be there. And then, and then things happen always in production. So um, that, that'd be probably like one of the biggest things. That's kind of more of a general thing, right? I don't think that's specific to React. Um, so maybe specific to React. Uh, let me think. You know, I mean, there, there's all the little things like, you know, anonymous inner functions. You got to make sure your functions are bound correctly in your class, like when you're calling the, uh, you know, the click event listeners or some, anything like that. Things have to be bound correctly. Um, you know, those are usually, you know, I mean, those will show up, right, in your development and you'll get an error pretty quickly with that. And, I've been a huge advocate on TypeScript, not for that reason, but in general, you know, using TypeScript um, is is just phenomenal for React development. Uh, and I didn't like, you know, last year, uh, I think a year ago when, when our team was doing the migration from Angular to React, um, I, I didn't have the mindset of using TypeScript. And then one of our developers pushed forward, like, okay, let's try this thing out. Fine, let, let's do it. And it's just been incredible. I mean, 
you know, I, I previously I thought, you know, why do I need TypeScript? You know, the whole reason I use JavaScript is it's not typed, right? This is why I love it. Um, and I've done a total reversal because like TypeScript, you get all the benefits of being typed because it's so close to ES6 just with type. And you could even just rename, you know, just like 99% of valid JavaScript is probably valid TypeScript. You just rename that ES and you probably will immediately get some benefits. But um, the having that kind of safety net as well, doing large-scale development is just phenomenal, I'd say, having types. And, you know, I'd say that's, that's, it's just a very good thing to have. That's been one of the things I'd say has been huge for, for React development, at least for me, um, you know. So, you know, there's that. I mean, there's all these little things, too, you know, with React in terms of understanding the life cycles, understanding what's called when, understanding, you know, that by default, your components are always going to re-render, right? Should component update always default to true, which is fine. Sometimes that's fine. I say out of the box, that's probably fine. But you have to have the understanding that as the application grows, you know, you don't want your top level to be re-rendering every time something changes with uh, with Redux, which would go to another best practice I've learned. It's, you know, like the, the model of least privileges, I think, which is kind of a Linux model as well. Um, and that is, you know, only give the privileges that are absolutely necessary when necessary. So, you know, with connecting Redux, um, if you can only ever connect primitives, fantastic, right? Because uh, connect by default um, is has kind of like a pure render thing in it. So um, I don't know. The one thing I don't know is if if connecting primitives, like, so it definitely only has like a pure render function, but will that re-render the actual component? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that'll cause a re-render if you update something or don't update something, right? Uh, with should component update uh, being true by default. But... Um, I know that connect built in does a shallow uh, comparison. Um, so if you can only ever connect primitives, then you by default get that uh, performance benefit um, with connect, which, which you know, you wouldn't necessarily know that just thinking offhand. I mean, I've looked at the connect code a lot because, um, you know, I wanted at some point to implement like this kind of whole dynamic TypeScript, TypeScript based deep equals, like deep shallow equals type of thing and connect. The only problem with connect is that um, it takes a variable list of arguments, but not in uh, like not in an option form in an object form. Um, it takes just a list of arguments. So if you were to pass in an, uh, a function to override the shallow equals that connect uses, you would actually have to populate like six different functions in it. Uh, if you don't populate those, it defaults to the internal ones. But if you try to populate them, those are only available internally within the, the connect. So you would actually have to fork the code base. So I didn't go down that path, unfortunately. But um, but it's just good to know that connect will do um, shallow comparison. So, um, you know, if you can only connect primitives, um, it's not always feasible. But if you can, well, then fantastic, you get that benefit. And then fantastic, you can use pure component and react, and then you get the performance benefits there too. So, um, you know, I mean, you know, going back to like uh, the, the one thing I love about React is, uh, you know, best practices in JavaScript become usually best practices in, in React. Um, and, and some of the exceptions are around the life cycle, um, which is, you know, uh, I'd say very easy to understand. I know React 16.3 appears to be a step in a more complicated direction uh, with how they're handling, uh, you know, I don't remember the names, but they're deprecating, I think, uh, you know, component will receive props and things like that. Uh, and I think maybe that's just a matter of getting used to it. And maybe it's um, a much more easy. I'm not really sure. Um, I haven't migrated to that yet. but. Um, it did look like a little bit of departure, but again, maybe that's just familiarity with the existing system versus the new one. Yeah. 
Good stuff. Yeah. So one thing that you mentioned in there was uh, a very common point of conversation uh, when you were talking about Redux in there. Uh, what is the advice that you give people when uh, they're trying to decide what components they should connect to Redux and what they should uh, just handle with local state or handle by passing props down from some parent component? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, one way that you that to handle one question like that is to have in the same file a connected component and ha always have a kind of a stateless component that that's connecting to. And that's the benefit there is also you, know, you can test them much more easily there. Um, if you always treat your you know, actual component as simply receiving props um, and you export that component as well, then it's fully testable. If you um, rely on the component, only the, ex only the connected component to be exported, then um, it, it, it's totally doable. I mean, you do a mock Redux store and you can actually uh, do that. That's not a problem. Um, it, it just adds one layer of complication. So it's nice to have all of your connected uh, components also. Um, well, it's nice to have the, you know, uh, the connected components exported and the non-connected part of it exported too. So um, that's really nice. Now, in terms of, you know, when should you... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give an example of, of a good example of when maybe you shouldn't use Redux, right? So like a type ahead. And uh, you could connect a type ahead to Redux. I think that's totally fine. It may be a good soft cache, but, um, you know, that's not always what you want to do. And a lot of uh, libraries with type ahead, you may want to wrap. So I think um, I've used the, it was a booter, uh, bootstrap or Twitter type ahead, I forget. But I wanted to wrap it in a, and, you know, just for my specific uses for an internal API to uh, fetch users. So it made a lot more sense because uh, you have to pass a function where it, the input is the whatever the string the user typed in the input. Um, and then it fetches and then it simply responds with the output um, asynchronously. So <clears throat> it could have been connected to Redux, but it seemed like that was just the wrong approach. It would have. Uh, it, it would have just made it actually much more complicated without a significant amount of benefit. Something like a uh, uh, type ahead library generally has its built-in cache. Um, so generally, you wouldn't need to necessarily use uh, um, Redux. So in an in example like that, it made much more sense to simply embed that fetch call within a function that, you, that I was passing to uh, the type ahead component to tell it, okay, when you receive input, um, you know, execute this promise that returns you the output, right? Which was just a fetch call. Um, so in that particular case, it made much more sense to, I, I think it made more sense to use just an embedded call like that. There, you know, there, you know, I didn't even use Redux. It may have worked out totally fine to use Redux, but it was just more boilerplate code that didn't seem really necessary in that particular case. Yeah, I hear you. I, I think about, uh, uh, so many projects I've looked at that were overusing Redux and the common thread was that they were putting data in Redux that was really of interest to a single component. And then the question became, well, we're effectively creating a global piece of state out of something that is really of concern to this one little component by itself. So I, I, I realize that there are potentially other reasons, but the largest reason is uh, I want to use this data across multiple components. Um, so yeah, in the case that you had right there, I would think no other component really cares about the fact that someone just hit another character in your type ahead um, in most cases. Yeah, unless you were wanting to actually distribute the, the fact that you've just entered some of that and load data into a number of other components, but that, that's not a typical mm -hmm. use case. Uh, exactly. So yeah, I, I agree with what you said there. Yeah, I guess that kind of also goes along with a discussion that I've been hearing lately as far as kind of like when to use Redux and when not to use Redux. 
and Redux got really, really popular for a while. And, and then people started talking about that people are reusing it. And um, now we're kind of in this current discussion about people like kind of talking about like, you know, not to use Redux unless you really, really need it. But in reality, I'm kind of curious what your take is on when, when should Redux even be used in a project at all? Is it just kind of in a project that, that has like more than, um, you know, a small amount of state in global state? Or um, like when, when should something like MobX be considered and when should just a, a basic, you know, compilation of set state calls at like a really high level be used and kind of like what's your take on that whole conversation? Yeah, sure. You know, um, I point to back to the reason, you know, Redux or uh, the flux, you know, pattern uh, exists to begin with because it solves the real problem of, you know, needing to pass state down through props, which, you know, is definitely a real problem because, you know, the new um, context API, right, is it's the same thing it's attempting to solve or it's that it's solving, right? So when should Redux be used? I would say, you know, at any point that your data is required in more than one component, it's a great candidate for Redux. And I mean, the beauty of Redux is just so small, tight and compact that, um, you know, you could use it for just a couple pieces of data within your app. And it could, you know, make your app look much more readable and uh, much more pleasant looking than having to pass the data down. So, and you can do that maybe with the context API. I mean, I could even foresee, you know, um, you know, a mix maybe even of the con the new context um, Redux um, and uh, maybe just set state and, and certain things that are kind of encapsulated just in the component. Now, I haven't used the new context API, so um, I don't know if one would use exclusively that or Redux or if that would even be a replacement for Redux. So I've heard a little bit on that and uh, I think from Dan Abramov and said that it, it's not, you know, I, I don't think it's a, a, a full replacement. Um, it, it seems like it could potentially suffer from like a pyramid of, of uh, components, right? To get all the um, uh, various contexts you need. So um, I don't necessarily think it's a full um, replacement, but it still solves a great problem that needs to be solved, which is what Redux solves in the flux you know, pattern solves is getting individual state in multiple components. So I think as soon as you need individual state in multiple multiple components, then Redux is a fantastic lightweight approach to do it. Um, in terms of MobX, uh, that's been on my list of things to try. I haven't tried MobX yet, but I mean, I've literally only heard fantastic things about MobX, um, include, including uh, like even unrelated to all this, like Vue. Like I've been wanting to try Vue. I've only, anyone I've ever talked to or read about just raves about Vue, um, just like people did about React. So I'd eventually like to try that. But with MobX, um, I've heard fantastic things about MobX, um, but I haven't personally tried it yet. But I think it, it solves the same thing, right? I mean, it essentially solves the same same thing of, of referencing um, some sort of global state in, uh, in any particular component or nested component. Now, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll talk about one other thing, which I've um, only begun to kind of dabble in with uh, kind of Redux uh, state design and that I found that as an application grows, um, referencing data for a particular something like a case number or an account number or an order number even, um, if you store your state um, kind of at a very high level, in other words, you know, let's say you have a, um, you know, an order uh, action reducer and, you know, in that initial state, you know, you have an order field or an order number field, maybe that you're tracking. 
um, you know, and that's maybe bound, like when you load a particular URL order slash one, then, you know, that gets populated. So the problem with that and what I've been finding as the, the application I was working on was growing was what happens when you click an order, uh, let's say you click order one, then you really quickly cl click order two, but um, order two um, is delayed uh, or, or quicker and then order one comes back. So now you're viewing order one, even though your, your URL says order two, right? And so it's a problem with Redux that um, if, if you design it in a certain way, it can potentially reference the wrong data, right? Uh, based on how you're loading your data and your components and how you're storing your data. Because if uh, if you click really quick between things and one of the promises is delayed, right, in fetching, which I've seen that happen before, then wrong data can be loaded. Uh, and one way I found around that is to always key your Redux to a particular thing. So instead of saying, you know, order in TypeScript, like order colon, I don't know, object or, you know, whatever your interface with the order is. Um, you may have orders, which would be an object of key value pairs, key being the order ID and value being the actual order. Um, so then when you're viewing your particular entity or whatever you're viewing from Redux, um, your component is always viewing a particular, it, the exact thing that you're referencing. Um, and so it can never reference the wrong object. Um, and I found that come up multiple times. And I think that becomes an issue, especially when you're dealing with, you know, mobile or slower networks or you're, or just really in anything, as soon as your application is growing or you're having a lot of more complicated interactions, I think you have to be careful with how you're structuring your Redux so then they can be resilient to things like that. For you, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, uh, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Can you clarify what you mean by uh, keying off of the ID? I, I, are you saying, are you referring to the way that you structure your Redux store itself or the way that you structure the action that you're firing? Probably, I mean, it would require... Probably just the store, I would say. So, so you know, let's just say you you say load order number one, right? Um, mm -hmm. That's your action, you know, load order one. Well, that loads it, and then it, um, you know, it um, dispatches, you know, the action. The reducer picks it up. That says, okay, uh, order number one was just loaded. Uh, the problem with that is that, uh, you know, what if that, uh, what if someone went to go, you know, load order two, um, and um, order one was delayed, order two loaded. So the reducer accepted order two, set it to that. But then the order one came back in and now you're viewing order one while your URL says order two, for example, right? Um, and so the the thing there would be to, when you're receiving that order, um, you should um, in the state, in the state, the new state, the mutable state, um, have an object of key value pairs, you know, like a, like a business key. So the order, like order number one would be the ID. So you know, like one colon and then the actual order. So 
Uh, and you could even do it in a fashion that you can just throw away the old state there in any way. I mean, because, you, you know, if you do 100 orders, it could keep in redux. I mean, that's a concern. So you don't have to keep the actual uh, other state in there. So you don't have to merge the two states, right? Uh, you could just um, assign that new state in uh, potentially. Now, the, the, the again, the, the problem with that is what if your promises are, you know, what if there's a delay there, then it could actually throw away the old state and you get the new state and then the old one could be, uh, you know, it could be dereferenced. So uh, th there's that issue too, right? <clears throat> so, you know, Redux is it's treated kind of like a, a cache, right? In memory cache. So you may not want to throw away the old state. You may want to just merge the two together um, or have, or then you get even more complicated, which uh, the real concern is, okay, what, you know, how large is this tab going to get if I never remove anything? So, um, you know, I've, I, I've explored some with um, having a, an interval or something that goes in and then uh, cleans up a Redux state that hasn't been touched in a particular period of time, but that gets a little more complicated. So there are, you know, there are more concerns here. I would say, um, you know, and you could have, you know, you could have it clean up, you know, older, you know, pieces of information. Of course, then you have to track: is this information actually being used or viewed? And then that gets more complicated. So um, I think it's just things you, to be aware of, um, you know. And, and and even if you want to prevent all of this, you can simply. Uh, can't you know? You can just drop any incoming um, request if something is in progress, and that's one way that we handled it. Is you know, a user clicks you know, I don't know, order one, and they click order two, but order one hasn't finished. Um, don't let them click order two yet, right? And that's one way to get around it in a very simplistic uh, fashion. And given the flow you just described, I was thinking about how uh, Redux Saga makes uh, describing that pretty elegant. Do, do you have any experience using it, or do you typically use thunks? Uh, I use Thunk right now, and okay. um, I I think like I've been curious on how maybe a, a finite state machine or something would work, you know, with with it, because the other you know issue is with with Redux that gets very complicated. I would say is you know multiple components can invoke the same action, uh, or the same action can have consequences in multiple components, right? And or the same action can actually trigger multiple reducers, which even gets more complicated. So one thing I've been finding is, and I don't even necessarily know the answer to this, and maybe Saga is an answer, is um, how do you handle all of the consequences of, a, of what an action does? Uh, you, may have, you may have an order, but that may load, you know, 10 other, uh, may make 10 other API calls uh, to load up a, a single order. And all of those individual 10 it could have a consequence, I and mean, you could have a component which, uh, uh, when it updates, when you know, uh, component that uh, will receive props, it says, "Oh, um, you know, the user to this order updated. Let me go fetch the user and display that user in the subcomponent." Right. So I've I've not really found a good way to map all of that. So if you're developing an application, you kind of intuitively know, okay, if I you know update a an, uh, or if I view a new order, that's probably going to have a different user associated with it who made the order, which is probably going to update the user component. Um, right. But if you're not as familiar with the app or you're onboarding or you're, you know, you're a new developer, something coming in on it, or you just haven't got to that piece in a while and you kind of forget about it. Um, I, I, I'd say it's hard to remember. And this is probably a, a case in any framework. Um, it's hard to remember or visualize all of the consequences, um, of a particular action. I clicked on this other order. What exactly happens? Right. And I'd say that's a, that's, that's a hard thing to kind of visualize. And, uh, and I don't know if Saga, you know, um, addresses that particularly, but I do use thumbs and, and those are nice. Um, but 
um, it, I think you just have to be very careful with, uh, you know, consequences with making redux actions and, and structuring those properly so they're easy to understand. And that's not always possible. Has there been any particular uh, constraint that you've found annoying working in thunks? And, and I, I say that partially because I see a lot of people jumping immediately to Redux Saga, I think because of the impression that it is uh, the more powerful option. And I, I would tend to agree, it, it definitely has a lot of, uh, gives you a lot of power to be very declarative about handling asynchronous problems. But I, I like you, have found thunks to be uh, pretty darn useful and simple to understand. It doesn't take me long to, to teach others on the team how that works. I don't see people stumble a lot working with them beyond the friction that they create creating uh, automated tests. H have you found any particular pain points working with Thunks yourself? You know, uh, um, at least in TypeScript, the returns are not as well-defined as I would like. Um, they, I think it maybe returns a dispatch, but I don't think that's even defined in any TypeScript library. So you really just return a promise and, you know, you just type the promise yourself. But one of the, you know, I would say maybe least used, or maybe it was just, you know, maybe least used, uh, uh, in my particular case was remembering that the thump can actually return the data, right? Because a lot of times in Redux, and there's, this is more of an edge case thing, but, you know, you, you make an action, it does something, it updates, you know, your reducers, you know, uh, receives the other action and, you know, you have new state and uh, such and so forth. But, uh, you know, there's certain instances where um, you may want that data immediately, you know, from the action. Um, and you can get that data. It's totally fine. You just return the data, right, in the, uh, in the asynchronous action. So, you know, um, I think if, if I remember, there was one example where um, there was a modal, using a modal, and it was supposed to fetch um, a... Uh, and this may have actually been a better use case for doing state within a component, but we we're using Redux. So the, it was, you know, trying to fetch a particular case so a user could review it, right? Um, so within that context, it worked better to treat that as more of just a um, uh, asynchronous function to get the case number um, versus uh, connecting to that uh, from Redux. Uh, and as I'm saying this, it's like, okay, that would make more sense to do it in, in the uh, in the component itself, but. Um, but that's how it was structured at the time. So, you know, within your, your uh, Redux thunk, I guess is what you call it, um, you can return anything. You just return the object, right? You async await and whatever you need to do, dispatch uh, any other actions you need to dispatch. And at the very end, you return anything because by default, it'll return null or undefined. Um, you can, you know, you can return anything. You can just, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, const case number equals, you know, await dispatch action. And then uh, by default, again, it would be undefined unless you return something. So uh, that can be pretty powerful, I think, because you can do anything you need to there and return something as well there. But I mean, there's limited use cases to it, but it's there too. But um, in terms of, you know, other pain points, I don't know, you know, it's, it's just simple async awaits, right? Um, with, with Redux Thunk. So to me, it was extremely straightforward. You know, you just create any number of promises, await on any number, dispatch any number of actions you need to in that. Um, you know, when you're done, you're done. Uh, sometimes you need to await on that thunk. Sometimes you don't, right? Um, and I, I, I think maybe, yeah, maybe a pain point then, now that I'm thinking about it, could be uh, sometimes when you need to dispatch an action, um, uh, you need to, you know, await on that action to finish to set some state. And th there's some hybrid between, you know, Redux and actually maintaining local state. 
um, in certain, you know, uh, uh, components. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. I'm not thinking one off the top of the head, although I know I've, I've encountered this multiple times in certain instances where, you know, making an action, uh, you know, and waiting for the response, um, you need to wait for that until you execute something else within the component itself. Uh, and that's, that's, again, that's an edge case, but it's something to, it's just something to be aware of that you can't await on that, right? You can't await on that. And I think maybe what I'm thinking of is um, if you await on a thunk um, from executing action, let's just say load order, that next line is not going to have the actual state in the component, right? Um, I think that's true uh, because it would take that function to finish um, for the connect to actually receive the new props from Redux. And I think that's maybe potentially something to be aware of. I think that's the case. Uh, and But in general, I think there is some interaction there. You know, when does your, uh, after executing a you know, Redux action, uh, when does the uh, store actually get updated? When does that actually come to the connect versus, uh, or compared to when you're actually waiting on that uh, action to finish in a particular function like component will now, right? I mean, what's surrounding it? I think it's just things you, you have to be aware of that, um, you know, there sometimes you can't await on the action expected to work for sometimes you may not be able to. Yeah, so when dealing with the asynchronous stuff, like I've tried uh, the two, you know, I've tried Thunk and I've tried Sagas and I've also tried Redux Observable and I believe it's Redux Promise Middleware. I've kind of like uh, really enjoyed uh, checking out Redux Promise Middleware because it's kind of like Thunk uh, or use it, I guess, use it with Thunk but you're kind of getting like a lot less boilerplate and it gives a little bit more of the, um, the configuration that like with, with sagas, you have kind of a consistent API and you kind of, kind of also kind of have an, a consistent API with uh, redux observable. So yeah, anyone listening, you know, maybe is, is that's interested in working with this asynchronous stuff, check that out too. But I do have a question. This is kind of uh, going to fear off a little bit. This is about GraphQL. Um, a lot of people are moving to, uh, or a lot of people are at least trying out GraphQL APIs these days. And the way that state is managed is quite a bit differently. And I was just kind of curious if you had, if you had worked with GraphQL at all, and if you had any ideas about whether Redux is still something that you would use with, with GraphQL, or if that's something that would be like a replacement um, as far as like, if you're working with GraphQL, you might not want to use Redux, or um, if you just had any thoughts about that subject in general. Yeah, no, I haven't used GraphQL. I've read quite a bit about it, and I've I've really wanted to use it. I haven't had the opportunity in a particular app to use it yet, um, but it looks fantastic. I mean, you know, it, it just it looks really good. So I'd love to use it. Um, I don't even I I couldn't speak with any authority as uh, as to if it supplanted Redux or not. I'm not entirely sure. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think it would probably go back to um, with GraphQL. Can you access that data? Um, in any component, right? Do you just simply connect to your GraphQL query, right? In any component and receive exactly what you want. Um, that may be the case. I don't know. I mean, it still seems like if that was true, you're still making a call to the back end, right? The so Redux is, you know, like an in-memory global state cache, essentially. So it seems like even if you could connect multiple components via GraphQL, um, it's still making that network call to the back end. I think that would be true. Um, so then it would seem like there still is a a, uh, a space to fill with um, not doing that, particularly on the on the client side with something like Redux. But um, I don't know if that's true or not, right? Because I'm not exactly familiar with how it's implemented. 
And I guess really uh, one last question. So you're you're moving to this new position as like a developer evangelist type of role, you, you had said, with Microsoft. Um, so could you give some advice to people listening that are maybe like just getting started with React or that even are using React or trying to level up their career? How how you manage to land a role like at a company like Microsoft um, after, you know, working with React for a couple of years? Yeah. So, you know, I've been in the industry for 12 years. So, you know, I've done a lot on the back and a lot full stack, you know, and a lot on the client side. So I'll probably treat this more generally. Um, I would say uh, it's important to always be growing and learning. I think that's the most important thing, no matter what you're doing. Always challenge yourself. Always be a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I think if you, if, you ask it, if you have to ask yourself the question, when's the last time I learned something? That's a problem. Right, you have to always be learning, always be challenging yourself, um, and you'll gain the you know you'll gain the skills necessary. I mean, if you, if you keep pushing yourself, you have that mindset like a growth mindset. I mean, um, you will continue to advance and level up your career. I think I think it takes it takes effort, it takes focus, it takes energy to always be aware um, of where you're at um, and if you are growing or not. I mean, it, it takes quite a bit of introspection. And there's been points, you know, in, in my career, I'd say that, you know, it took me a while to realize, you know, I actually haven't learned anything recently. Um, I needed to change that, right? Um, because if you're not learning something, you know, the tech world will pass you by. Um, and to, to, make, to uh, be marketable, you know, you, you've got to have either a niche, a specialty, or just be uh, very uh, well-versed in a lot of various things um, that you can speak about. So, and, and that comes with time, comes with experience, and just comes with a desire to um, con- to continue to learn. I mean, it can be very easy to get in a comfortable position. And, um, you know, you get good doing what you're doing or the app you're working on. And then, uh, you know, years go by and, and there's been all of these new technologies that have come out um, that are on the cutting edge that, you know, maybe bigger companies are using or trying to use that you're not as familiar with. You know, it's easy to kind of shy away from that and then. Uh, not keep your skills current. So I think it takes a lot of effort um, to keep one's career in a very marketable position. Um, I haven't done that great here and there, I've, but I've always tried to have the mindset um, to to always be open, uh, to always continue to learn, um, and to always be trying to push myself in something new. And um, you know, even you know, if something feels uncomfortable, do it right because that's probably good. I mean, when you're uncomfortable is when you're learning the most. Um, that, you know, that's a lesson I've learned. So, you know, if, if you're trying to advance your career, it's totally doable. You just got to, you know, put yourself out there learn, learn something new, or just always be learning something, always be tinkering with something, learning a new framework, learning something new, because everything you learn, um, you know, that's how the brain works. It works off association. Um, so the more you learn, the more everything else is easier to learn and the more you understand everything else. Uh, the, you know, you know, if you're a React guy, honestly, go learn Angular too, right? Go learn Vue. Uh, because I promise you, learning those things will make you a better React developer or just a better developer in general because everything kind of feeds off each other in, in you know, any domain of knowledge. Um, the more uh, variety of knowledge you have in a particular domain, I'd say the, the stronger you will be in that domain. And even, you know, um, back-end things. You know, if you're a client-side developer only, go learn, the, you know, go learn Python or Java or something in the back-end. It's probably going to make you a better front-end developer to learn how the back-end works. Great advice. I like it. Uh, let's see. So Sam, any final thoughts you want to share before we jump over to picks? No, no. I think, I think that was a fantastic conversation. Yeah. This has been, this has been really great so far. Um, just encourage anyone if they haven't jumped on, you know, react, uh, give it a try. Right. It's, uh, 
I know, I know it's probably one of the most popular frameworks out there, but, um, you know, give it a try. It's, you know, and especially I'd say TypeScript. Like if you haven't, you know, if you're on the fence on TypeScript, give it, a, I mean, give it a go. It's just fantastic, especially in, uh, with, with React. I'd say definitely give it a try. And especially in VS Code, it's, it's really fun oh. there. <laughs> yeah, I should have mentioned VS Code. Yeah, the two technologies that have probably impacted me the most in a very positive way in the last year has probably been VS Code and TypeScript. I mean, those have just been superb technologies. Both coming like from peanut butter and jelly. I'm not saying that because of Microsoft. I'm just saying those have honestly been just fantastic technologies. Agreed. Okay, so uh, let's jump over to Pix. Natter, you want to start us off with Pix? Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Sure. So um, I just left React Amsterdam. So a couple of things are my picks from React Amsterdam. First of all, the conference in general was like really cool and really fun. And all the talks are up on YouTube. So you can just like Google React Amsterdam on uh, and YouTube and you can see the talks there. Um, the second thing out of the conference is uh, like I work with AWS Mobile. We actually did a general availability, of, uh, like a major release of AppSync. So if, you look, if you've been wanting to play around with GraphQL, we have uh, what's called uh, managed GraphQL. So it's, it's, a, it's AWS AppSync. You can basically just set up an API and um, have it ready to go configure without having to write all of the server side code and everything like that. It's scalable. It does authorization on authentication, and um, it does subscriptions. It does um, streaming to like things like um, Elasticsearch. It's pretty powerful. Um, our general availability added a bunch of features. Um, we also released our own GraphQL client that works not only with AppSync, but with pretty much any GraphQL framework that you're working with on the back end. So if you're using something like GraphQL or if you built your own GraphQL API, you can still use uh, Amplify's GraphQL client. And um, it supports right now subscriptions, uh, queries, and mutations. Um, so it pretty much does the full gamut of GraphQL operations. Uh, we're working on now adding a few more features to it, like offline support, which uh, we, we already support out of the box in our, in our other GraphQL client that is kind of a fork of Apollo. But um, if you're um, using the new client, it does not yet support offline support. So yeah, that, those are my picks. That's the first I've heard of AppSync. I'm sitting here reading about it now. This looks uh, very interesting. So it actually does take a, a hard dependency on GraphQL, though. You you have to use it for your uh, query rather than a, a traditional API approach? Yeah, basically, it's kind of like Firebase, but it's only for GraphQL. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, when I was reading about this, it felt very much like Firebase. Okay, kind of an AWS flavor uh, or competitor to it. Good stuff. Right. It's, okay. it's easy to get up and running with GraphQL. Like, if you're, not, if you're, if you're kind of just getting started, especially, it's, it's, it's good. So, yeah. Slick. 
Okay. Um, so my picks this week are uh, one thing. If you're tired of writing a React prop types by hand, which I am, uh, I just found a site called transform.now.sh. And what it has is a number of different converters out there. You can take the JSON that you've gotten back from a RESTful API call and paste it into transform.now and it will spit out prop type declarations for you. So you don't have to manually go in and declare the shape of your different objects. It does that for you. Very, very handy. And then the other thing, I just use it today too. I was taking some plain CSS and I wanted to use CSS and JavaScript. So I needed to basically take regular CSS and convert it into React's uh, object approach. Well, you can just paste in plain CSS and it will convert that over to the object uh, equivalent of that. Paste it right in and you can use React's inline styles. Same token, if you ever take old HTML and you want to convert it to JSX, it does that too. So paste in plain HTML, get JSX um, out the other side. Very, very handy. That's transform.now.sh. And then my uh, other pick is for plop.js, which is a handy way to generate files. I've been using it uh, just here recently to generate new files in React projects. I've made it part of our company's uh, React framework. So when we're creating actions, reducers, constants, files, stateless components, or stateful components, Pure components, you think about all the ways that you do those things and the machinery that's set up, automating creation of your test files too when you do that with associated names. All of that can be done with Plop.js. They make it really easy. So that's plopjs.com. I'll share those links in the notes. Uh, and finally, so Sam, you have any picks to share with us? Yeah, you know, I, I thought of one I'll share. Um, I've done a lot of uh, optimization with Webpack. I mean, I've spent a long time optimizing Webpack builds. Um, because that's important to have very fast webpack builds. And I've, I've finally come down to the hard sources plugin. I believe that's what it's called. Um, I was using the DLL plugin, and that was reasonably fast. And I think the hard sources plugin is even a bit faster. And, and the build is a lot less complicated, I think, um, than the DLL build. So, um, you know, on a, a fairly large code base, I think our rebuilds are something like, you know, I don't know, between two and five seconds. Um, which out of the box could be 20 seconds, right? So the hard sources plugin, it essentially uh, caches um, each module and it only uh, rebuilds the individual modules that you need. And that's, um, and that's the same idea, I think, behind the DLL, but it's a little bit different than the DLL because I think the hard sources um, encompasses the entire project, I think, including those modules. Um, and I think it has a more consistent hashing to it as well. So um, it, it's really fast. So if, if your you know, rebuild times in Webpack are slow, um, give hard sources plug-in a look. Um, it's, um, it's really fast out of the box. It's really nice. Nice. Yeah, I hadn't heard of this one. I'm giving it a read now. That's a good pick. I like it. For a guy that's new to picks, you picked a good one. So, <laughs> well done, <laughs> Sam. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess uh, that will wrap up our show today. Sam, thanks for coming on. Before we wrap up, how should uh, people reach out to you out online? Yes. Yeah, so I'm on GitHub, uh, Engineer Samuel, and on Twitter, um, Engineer Samuel. Uh, and, um, you know, I think those are probably maybe the two best ways to get a hold of me. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Sam, thank you again for coming on. This was a fun conversation. I appreciated it. Thank you so much. And everybody, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.